Hey everyone, I'm Legion along with Nathan Bachez, and this is Means of Creation, a show where we deep dive into the passion economy and the future of work. This show is made by Every, a writer's collective focused on business. This week, we're really excited to be joined by Packy McCormick. Packy writes about business strategy, community, and tech via his newsletter, Not Boring, which is definitely not boring and now has more than 75,000 subscribers and is over 100 issues in. We're really excited to have Packy here on the show today because his essays about business and technology trends are extremely insightful. He takes esoteric, hard-to-navigate topics like Solana or Ethereum and NFTs and bridges the gap to more mainstream readers. He's been unpacking Web3 trends, not just from a financial and technological lens, but also from a societal and cultural cultural one, writing about how NFTs help us to play status games, the resurgence of ownership, and what Web3 entails for the creator economy and the future of work. So without further ado, Packy, thanks so much for joining us today. It is so great to be here with some friends. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. I remember the good old days when I had more newsletter subscribers than you, and those have those are long since gone. So it, it is. I mean, an it, honor. Is, it is. <laughs> it is. An it honor is. It is. Thanks to you. you. I mean, like I, I will give give you all the credit in the world, but that uh, the Type House I think was kind of the first time when I was like, and Type House for people listening is this this uh, Telegram group that we had of, of a bunch of newsletter writers focused kind of broadly and loosely on business was the first time I remember getting into that room and being like, oh my God, like, these are all my writing heroes in this room. This is amazing. So I, I think that helped me uh, in the beginning to believe that I could actually do this. Well, the student has surpassed the teacher and now we look up to you as our writing hero. I was just telling someone the other day that out of all of the people in Type House, not many of us still type that actively anymore. <laughs> so maybe we should rename it to sometimes Type House. But um, no, it's just been incredible to see your writing career as well as your investing career take off over the last year. Thank you. I think I'm a glutton for punishment. And once I say that I'm going to do something, I just kind of keep doing it. And so it's, it's been fun, though. I'm having a blast writing and no signs of slowing down. Amazing. Awesome. So... Yeah, on that topic, you've been writing for a while. Um, I think the first issue went out in April of 2020. Um, so last year, and now you're about 100 issues into it. You didn't start with writing about crypto and Web3. Um, it was a lot more focused on general business and large companies and, and technology in general. I'm really curious um, because I, I love to understand people's personal journeys. How did you become interested in crypto and what was the catalyst or series of catalysts that got you down the rabbit hole? Oh yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So I got interested in crypto, frankly, back in 2013, uh, when I read Fred Wilson's blog post on Union Square investing in Coinbase. And because I was uh, mm. at Bank of America Merrill Lynch at the time, and we had a 30 day kind of trading restriction where you had to hold anything that you bought for 30 days if they knew about it. I was like, I bet they don't know about Coinbase. So I'm going to start buying Bitcoin because that's that's more fun. I don't have to go through compliance, all of that kind of stuff. So I bought 38 Bitcoin was like, you know, this is stupid, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> see what I can do here, trade it. Went on a trip uh, to Oktoberfest and sold the Bitcoin to pay for the trip because I felt bad that I had spent so much money after I had quit my all job. So I sold all of it 
in over the course of a couple All of weeks. All 38 Bitcoins. 38 Bitcoin. Oh my God. So for that reason, you know, I, I stayed mostly away from the space. I bought a little bit of Ethereum uh, kind of during. <laughs> I mean, talk about PTSD. It was, it's it's bad. So I really like, you know, stayed away. I was like, this is stupid. Yeah. Like this whole thing. And and frankly, like, you know, I am, I'm not that bummed about it from a financial perspective. You know, obviously a huge mistake, but I didn't really resonate super, super closely or super tightly with Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, And so what really got me back into it was kind of at the end of last year uh, and the beginning of this year, I'd been running a syndicate as part of Not Boring uh, and investing in some of the companies through uh, SPVs that, that I'd been writing about and talking to. And I started talking to a couple of companies that were building either Web3 or the metaverse or kind of the intersection of the two. And so I just kind of started to explore it. To me, before I hadn't really grokked how it could actually be valuable and how it could be anything more than kind of this speculative thing. My exposure to it had been, you know, buying Bitcoin and buying Ethereum in the 2017 ICO craze and all of that. But when I was talking to entrepreneurs about how, one, they could build kind of entire businesses uh, that are fully Web3 businesses or incorporate uh, some aspects of Web3 into their business, I wanted to dive deeper and kind of understand why and like what it actually did. And if there were things that you could find looking at other businesses that actually applied or could be enhanced by what was going on in Web3. And so the first piece that I wrote was I think called The Value Chain of the Open Metaverse. And it was just talking about this, this idea that you know, if you look at kind of the value chain, you're cutting out the middleman. And like I, the language of of crypto, I think was maybe a bit of a turnoff to me where it, it was really about like cutting people out and what it's against and blah, blah, blah. But when you think about it, I was like, oh, what that actually means is just like more value accrues to both sides. It accrues to the creator and it accrues to the consumer. And there's somebody in the middle just that isn't really there anymore taking the cut. And that's valuable. Like there's just more money to play with on on both sides there. And so that was really my first kind of reintroduction to it. And as Lee knows very well, and as Nathan's starting to understand, once you kind of start, I was like, all right, maybe I'll do like one crypto piece a month. And I was like, yeah, I'll do two crypto pieces a month. And now pretty much every Monday post that I write at least kind of touches something in Web3. And, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd say probably of the last 10 pieces I've written, probably eight have been Web3. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's once you start going down the rabbit hole, it's, it really, I think, has this effect of making everything else seem comparatively much less interesting. <laughs> it's like the superpower of crypto is it like somehow makes everything else seem like very slow or yeah not as intellectually interesting and and so I think it's it's really hard to maintain a balance between <laughs> like being interested in web 3 and also being interested in web it 2 is- and then I talk to founders in Web two all the time, and like each one, like everything that they're talking about is also super interesting. I think just from a, a think piece perspective, at least, or you know, if I'm a, a professional thought boy, like it just gives you so much more. I guess the word is like design space when you're building stuff, but also just kind of like the the writing equivalent of design space, where you can just kind of explore this new thing at the boundaries where something in Web two could be the most innovative, incredible business model in the world, and I, I'm still investing heavily into non-crypto stuff as well but it's just like they're the boundaries are a bit more defined so there's not as much kind of space to explore yeah. and experiment and, and all of that yeah i definitely feel like i i have felt that the past couple of weeks and I've, I've started to write a little bit more about web3 is like the, what's at stake 
just the level of change, the level of paradigm shift is just bigger. So especially from an intellectual perspective of writing, it's really like, oh, wow, I can talk about just what basically is money or like what basically are corporations or how do we organize people to like create value for other people? Like, it's just like, oh yeah, these are really big, fundamental, interesting questions that it at least raises, you know? And like, no matter where you come down on it, you could come down being excited about it or pessimistic or whatever. But like, I think at least it's really important to admit that raises interesting questions, you know? And that was the big shift for me. It was going from like not interested to interested more than, like bearish to bullish. I don't know if I'm actually any more bullish now than I was before I started writing about it, but at least I'm interested. And, and, uh, I, I don't know, maybe I'll just because of confirmation bias become bullish, but we'll see. <laughs> well, it's, it's so, it's so much fun because just there are people trying new things. You can design like kind of micro economies in a sandbox. There's incentive design at play. And like, there's just so many things happening all in one little Petri dish that it, it's just fascinating to, to explore. And you, I don't know, for me, like I am bullish, but I'm also just very hopeful that it works out because I think what can happen if it does is so much more fascinating than the world that we're in now, which is in itself very, very fascinating. But I don't know, if things continue to get crazier and crazier and crazier, it feels like this is kind of a key component of that happening where just ownership kind of moves to the edges, uh, control moves to the edges. Like, what does that world look like when all of that happens? I mean, on the other side of that too, like, I think there are real challenges, like, controlled teams are better at designing products for the most part, at least historically, maybe incentives can be aligned in such a way that that's not the case, but like Johnny Ives was a person and Apple's design team is very like, so there's a lot, I think, to prove on that side of things. Can you design products that are as good in a decentralized fashion? What's the right balance between centralization and decentralization? There's a lot of that stuff. And maybe it just becomes more ownership than collective design and building. I, I think that's all TBD. But I don't know, even that, I think, is just a fun kind of question to get to explore. Paki, I'm curious if you have a succinct definition of Web3 in your mind, um, because I've seen lots of different descriptions and definitions floating around, and it encompasses anything from AI and like the semantic web and websites kind of being able to predict our needs and what we're looking for all the way to um, like robotics, et cetera, or, or crypto. And so curious how you define that term. Web3. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the heart of it is the ownership piece and kind of the more that this is, I, I don't do succinct well. I think my average piece is like 6,000 words and they could probably all be 2,000 words. Uh, so I'm not going to give you a good succinct definition, but for me, Web3 is at the core, right? Like if we're in Web 2.0 or we're in Web 2.0 five years ago, there's robotics happening on the sides and there's 3D printing. And there's all these other things that are also happening. But I think the defining thing probably of that era are maybe the social networks uh, and kind of the read-write web. And that's that's what's kind of at the heart and what most consumers are experiencing. And I think in Web3, what most consumers will be experiencing is this more decentralized thing built on top of, of these kind of... Uh, you know, crypto protocols where ownership and and uh, economics go to the participants uh, as much as they do to any centralized kind of entity. And that wasn't succinct or good as a definition, but I like I just picture something that's like a little bit more kind of liquid and all over the place as opposed to everything kind of running through central pipes and people meeting in certain kind of central locations. Yeah. 
Um, Kayvon from Foundation recently posed this question on Twitter, like, what's your definition of Web3? And it was interesting, the the range of definitions that people proposed. Um, but one that I thought was really apt um, and actually, I think, very clarifying um, is one that I'll actually just read out here from Andy Matushak. Oh, he's I'm the best. Sure mm. his name, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we just... You, all you got to do is no. leave it there. It, it, that's a perfect <laughs> definition. Yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> he says, quote, this is sort of a counterintuitive definition given the emphasis on decentralization, but it helps me understand one facet. Imagine that all websites and databases and accounts and services are running on one shared server and anyone can program it. Mm. Yeah. I like that a lot. Exactly. So it, basically like all, all of the data, all of the accounts, all of the information are like globally accessible and shared and everyone agrees on on the set of data and then anyone is able to program applications on top of it and obviously that's like such a huge um that's that's basically the opposite of what exists today and it and so it takes us from a world of centralized applications um that are walled gardens each with their own proprietary sets of data and strong network effects resulting from that to um much more open free-flowing competition and ability for users to freely choose where they want to go. Yeah. I love that definition so much because it reminds me of a separate thing that I said once. I was trying to explain how decentralization kind of works to my dad. And I was like, it's kind of like language. Like you have to basically, the words you use have to line up with the expectations of what words mean in other people's head. And it doesn't mean that you have zero control, but it means like it has to basically align with everyone else. And if you try and make up some random word, like you can't make fetch happen, you know, Um, which is (laughs) hilarious because making fetch happen happened, but like fetch didn't happen. You know what I mean? It's like, you're not totally in control of like what's going to like happen or not happen. Like you, you just have to use what you've got. And so the one central decentralized, but sort of shared database or whatever is kind of like the stock of, of, of a language where it's like, here's all the words that we know that people basically know. And here's what they, here's what they associate with those words. All right, cool. Now do whatever you want, given that. And also you can make fetch happen, right? Like Bitcoin is essentially fetch right. that somebody made happen. Yeah. That's the title of the episode. <laughs> you can make fetch happen. <laughs> well, I, there's another interesting question here and I don't want to turn, turn the mic back on, on you, but was just reading, rereading the, that protocols piece, uh, I think by John Matera, USB in 2016. And it was talking about the fact that, you know, in, in web two, there's all these protocols that the internet has built on top of, uh, you know, that run email and the way that the internet works and all of that, but they don't accrue any value. You don't get any money from, for owning HTTP. And so all the things that are built on top of it, are these like fat applications where a lot of the value accrues and the protocols are thin protocols. Web3 flips that where all the applications are these thin applications on top and the protocols themselves, the you know, Bitcoin network, Ethereum, the different separately, like mirror, whatever, are all building protocols to which the value accrues. I wonder, one, how you think about that and if you think that's played out over the past five years, but then two, like what that says about building businesses on in web three. And, and if you think that more value does accrue just ultimately to whatever blockchain, everything is built on top of, or if you think there are going to be kind of over time, huge winners that are able to build moats and retain value. That's a good question. I feel like there will definitely be lots of moats, like 
to me, the interesting thing about like, for example, loot is, okay, let's say you want to have games in the blockchain that have interoperable um, like objects or equipment. Where do you start by building the game and try and figure out like how to, you know, use equipment from various different sources? Well, what if that equipment is like, you need a, you need a, a source of equipment that's like not going to be inflationary in order for it to like have any properties that matter within the game. Otherwise it's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't accrue any, like it shouldn't have any status or unique performance or whatever within the game. Um, cause anyone could just copy it or whatever. Um, so what you actually start with is the equipment and the equipment is a platform that other people can build games that integrate with, but the equipment is like this, it has a network effect. The more games that are built onto that equipment, the, the, the more valuable it is to have that equipment and the more valuable the equipment is, the more valuable to integrate it into your game. And so I think crypto is like this, there's like hyper positive feedback loops all over the place that create power in, in various, you know, sort of networks, but there's like tons of different little interesting things like PFPs and, you know, like different DAOs or whatever, like there's just all sorts of different things that accrue power. But yeah, I think it's going to be a very power rich universe with lots of perhaps even more powerful kind of entities or primitives or whatever than, uh, than, than in web two is, is my guess. I'm curious what you think, though. And I'm curious what Lee thinks. Yeah, I so I think it's still like super early days and so early that any theses that we have on defensibility in Web3 are still just theses and have yet to be proven out over a large, like a long time scale um, and across like a large N. Like there's been relatively few projects that have done the progressive decentralization playbook and launched a token and um, have persisted for more than a couple of years, honestly. I think most of the projects, I was talking to Will Papper from Syndicate the other day, and he was he was talking about how he did this analysis of like looking back in time, basically all of the projects from the 2013 era are now like, except for like Bitcoin, like most of them have retained no value. Same with the 2017 vintage, like all of the projects that arose during that cycle are pretty much like worthless today as well. Um, and so I think given the open source nature of developing in crypto and the fact that, yeah, all of these protocols are open source um, and all of the applications have to be minimally value extractive. I think it does raise a lot of questions about defensibility and how um, sustainable some of these things are. I I think like people in the space, when I ask them about defensibility, um, the elements that they'll point to are like softer sources of defensibility than what we as, you know, web two investors would have traditionally found um, satisfying. Like, they will point to um, like having a good reputation of being viewed as legitimate, having a strong, warm, friendly community, um, like having a great product that works well, that's built on top of the protocol. Um, So like bundling together the protocol and the product closely. These are all kind of forms of defensibility, but not necessarily to the same extent as like having proprietary data inside of a closed database that you would then use to build a product that like can can only be built by your company if you had that data. And so as as someone coming from the web2 consumer investment world, I look at this new type of defensibility and I'm like 
how how sustainable is that really given that in the past five years of investing i've seen so many brands and companies pitch me community as defensibility and ultimately like a lot of those communities did not persist and a lot of them do not have strong communities anymore um so i think a lot of this has yet to be proven out um and and probably a lot of it has to boil down to very thoughtful incentive design and and token design as well like in the example of loot the fact that it has eight that that there's only eight thousand total original bags of loot it caps the number of potential end users that you could have if your end users need to have loot in order to play the game Um, and then when dom launched mloot more loot um there was a huge uproar among those original holders about how this was going to depress the prices of the original loot. And so people were really upset about the fact that there were going to be holders of more loot. And so there's all these like conflicting incentives between long-term value creation versus short-term speculation. And so um, I think those are all interests that people in the community need to balance in order to ensure that these projects are successful in the long term. Yeah, agreed. I, I think about it a lot, I think in, in the same way there. I think one of the more interesting questions too is like, if that whole thesis falls apart, if anything flippins Bitcoin, or if another chain flippins Ethereum, if kind of the whole network effect argument falls apart. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is. And like, I'm certainly bought in on the fact that you should, you have more tools at your disposal to build network effects, but it also feels a little bit like it just requires kind of more constant energy to feed it than a traditional network effect Mm -hmm. might, where like Facebook has done everything that they can to make their product unusable and still the network effect persists because it has that proprietary data. It's plugged into so many different places. Like it could do nothing. You could fire everybody at Facebook and for the most part, it would still kind of go on. Whereas it feels like a lot of things in crypto need a lot more energy, just like more coal being shoveled into the fire at all times to keep those things going. And they can spin really, 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 really fast and get really, really, really hot. But, you know, does that keep going if if you don't have the constant attention and, and effort there? Yeah, I think especially for things where the value is speculation, it, that's definitely true. And I think the difference between Facebook and like, you know, any like the lazy lions or whatever is like Facebook people use not because they think it'll be valuable to be a user later that maybe you can cash out in some way they use because they just want to like see things from people they know and the people they know are there and they want to see things from them. And so, like you said, Facebook could like totally fall asleep at the wheel and people would still use it for quite some time, you know? Um, whereas like, yeah, like how do you maintain hype in something that is inherently, kind of like the only value is if other people want to buy it but if too many other people can buy it then it loses its value so it's like this delicate balance of supply and demand that's like this tightrope walk that gets increasingly impossible to walk and 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 i definitely think that's why i'm more bullish on things like uh like loot where there can be real value built by i want to be able to play a game and then there's this whole question of does every game on the blockchain become like play to win or whatever where you have to be rich in order to be good at the game and nobody wants that so anyway there's this all this interesting stuff kind of associated with it but um, at least there's the possibility for some uh, for some utility outs that 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 can sustain a network effect in a more sustainable Sustained in a more sustainable way. That was really that was a really great one. <laughs> no, but it's a, yeah, it's a it's a really good point. And this is, I mean, I think this little conversation that we've gone just kind of off on tangents is probably the best example of why 
we're going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole because you can just go off on these endless endless holes. Like you kind of know how network effects work on Web2. And that it's really hard for anybody else to capture one and all of that. And so like you kind of know what the, the rules are. And it's all still being figured out in Web3, which is why it's so much fun to continue to explore. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, going back to that post, the value chain of the open metaverse, um, given your observation that, yeah, like crypto in many ways does remove or hollow out that that intermediary and make it hard to capture value sustainably. And most of the value, therefore, accrues to either um, the creator or like the other side of the transaction. How like how as investors do you think we should approach the space? Like what do we actually invest in? This has been my, you know, this has been the hardest, the hardest question for me and probably why I haven't gone into being a full web three investor. Like I, I really am project by project and I don't have maybe a set set of rules. I'm really like looking at each case and I guess I would do this normally as well, but just looking at each company kind of independently and understanding kind of where the value crews investing in a lot of things before they're decentralized and there may be some progressive decentralization, but I think part of it, so we can go to the, the Solana piece. I thought, thought one of the most interesting things talking to people kind of closer to the Solana ecosystem was this idea that the value of Solana, the blockchain has to be greater than the value of everything built on top of it or else it's attackable. And so there's, I think this idea of like, as activity on top increases, will, you know, value accrues to the thing below it either directly through fees or because people need to stake and maintain the security of the network. And so I think there are some dynamics there as well. And, you know, if you're building on Solana, you, you, are staking Solana and you're actually gaining from that. If you're a Solana user, you're holding Solana to use the different things on top of the network. So you're gaining. And so it's probably a little bit just like owning shares in the thing, you know, and then also using it. So you're still, you know, you're still capturing value as both the creator and the user, but some value is also accruing to the, to the underlying protocol. Yeah. Also, just for I feel like we can probably safely assume everyone listening knows basically what like Ethereum is and smart contracts are. But like Solana might be new to some folks. So so maybe for people who aren't who can't quite remember what Solana is, like other people, not me. Um, what uh, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> I know basically it's like fast Ethereum, right? It's like Ethereum if if it was more efficient and their gas wasn't crazy to do anything. On yeah. It, right? So. Kind of. Solana uh, was a blockchain kind of founded around the same time that all of the other blockchain projects were or kind of, you know, Ethereum killer, quote unquote, projects were in, uh-huh. I think it was founded in late 2017, early 2018, after they saw that, you know, CryptoKitties broke the network, broke Ethereum because there was too much activity for the, the, the Ethereum network to handle. And so they needed a better way to do that. Uh, there wasn't even the ETH2 proposal at the time. So they're like, cool, I think we can we can rebuild this. And it was uh, Anatoly Yakovenko was the the kind of founder of, of Solana, the guy who wrote the, the white paper, uh, was an engineer at Qualcomm. And so actually they like, kind of broke the problem down like you would a, a network of cell towers and how you have a bunch of different phone calls going into a bunch of different towers and having to get to the right place at the right time. Huh. And so the the kind of key innovation there, and there's other innovations that are probably more important and more technical, so I understand them less well. But like the, the big one to kind of grasp is this concept of an arrow of time, where as you're sending transactions in, it knows because you stamp the transaction, it knows which came first in the block. And so it allows you to kind of both 
order within a block, but then schedule different blocks such that you don't have to wait for like you would on Ethereum for everybody to agree that this block went through and then build on top of it, which can slow everything down. In Solana, you can just take turns and the turns are scheduled. And so you can move a lot faster. And then it's also higher throughput than Ethereum is. And so what you end up with is faster speed for the blockchain uh, and lower transaction costs, which are like less than a cent. In Ethereum, it's like a hundred bucks to do anything, it's, right? I feel awful. Doing, I, I love Ethereum and I'm buying NFTs and I'm, I'm doing things. But like even I, I just sent some, sent some ETH to Polygon and I know you have to do that bridge one time. And once you're on Polygon, it's cheaper and faster. Polygon is a layer two kind of scaling solution for, for Ethereum. But even that one time just to send my 0.1 ETH to myself costs like $66. And I was like, oh man, like this is, this is tough. Um, and so, yeah, the, that, yeah. that gas fee, it really does feel when you're doing something on Solana a lot more like you're just doing a transaction on the internet where you don't have to think about what the transaction fee is. If Ethereum is maybe more like, you know, a Postmates for anybody who's ordered from Postmates where you really have to think about like, do I want to make this order because fees are like right $15 on my $5 thing that I bought? It feels a little bit like that sometimes. Whereas, you know, being on Solana just feels like clicking a like on Facebook or something. And there's not even like, you don't even associate a cost with it. Fascinating. So, okay. So given that context, <laughs> we were thinking through like the defensibility of Solana as a network, right? It was kind of like the question that Lee was asking about. And the idea is basically it's a competitor to Ethereum. And how do you know whether or not it's going to end up capturing any value, basically, of the ecosystem that's built on top of it, even if it succeeds? Is that basically right? So yeah, in Solana's case, in particular, so the way that so I wrote about Solana maybe three or so weeks ago, and the way that I kind of framed it, and I think this is what I try to do with a lot of the Web3 stuff is like, really analogizing it back to something that people are familiar with. And so in Solana's case, or really in any any blockchain's case, it's a platform. And so the goal is to get developers to build on top of it. And then those developers attract users to use the product. And then I guess kind of, you know, just through through the app, use the, the blockchain also. And so there's a couple ways that, that Solana can accrue value. One is just more people want to interact on it. So more people buy it and demand increases the price as more people want to do things on Solana, they buy more of the sole token and that increases the price. Another is through miner extracted value, uh, which is something that exists on Ethereum is harder on, uh, on Solana because you have this order of time thing, but it essentially means like in uh, Ethereum, the person who's, who's uh, validating the block or mining the block can, shuffle things around within the block and give somebody the right to go first. And that's why you tip in your gas fee. And if you're trying to mint a hot NFT, you can up the gas because that'll move you up in the block. In Solana, same thing can happen as well, where you can just kind of pay more, uh, but pay more to the person on the other side of the transaction. So there's, there's ways to capture by people paying more to move up because there's real value to them in doing so. So if you're like, high frequency trading yeah. and somebody else is minting an NFT, the high frequency trader is actually willing and happy to pay to, to move up or to pay you for your information. And like, there's, that's, I think, harder for me to grok. The more interesting way for me to think about it was that everybody who builds on top of Solana stakes their Solana. Most Solana users or a lot of Solana owners stake their Solana all to protect the network. And the way that a few people explained it to me is that, if the value, and 
this is cleaner in words than it actually is in practice. There's a limit below kind of the equal number where this is true, but the value of the Solana blockchain and the amount of the, the amount staked and the, uh, the amount staked to protect it has to be more than the amount of value in the projects built on top of it, or else it actually makes economic sense to attack the network and drain everything on top of it. And not everybody's a bad actor. And so there are reasons that Solana can actually be worth less than all of the things built on top of it. But conceptually, it's worth people staking more to protect the network, which also makes Solana more or makes Sol more valuable. This stuff is hard to talk about. It's easier to write about when I have time to like actually think through. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, this is super interesting. I want to sort of bring us out of the Solana rabbit hole um, because it's, it's a little bit esoteric um, and also a little bit controversial, I think, <laughs> to bring up Solana, um, especially among people who might be more interested in Ethereum. Which is, um, but <laughs> just a side comment, was shocking to me. Like I'm an ETH person through and through, but when I wrote yeah. about Solana, there was a lot of ETH people who were like, no, like you can't, it's it's only Ethereum. And like they're a response to Bitcoin, right. the whole thing, the maxi thing freaks me yes. out a little bit, but. it's. I think it's, it's not, yeah, I, it, it's super interesting. I was talking to Nathan about this before we started recording, but the beauty and the curse of this space is that everyone has some financial interest in seeing something succeed. And that makes them either super rapidly a fan of something or very much dismissive of it if if they're not financially exposed to it. So just given the, the network effects um, of everyone who's been building on Ethereum for the last few years, I've also found, yeah, like the, the reactions when you talk about Solana or any other chain or People have strong opinions either way. My conclusion way. on it, though, and this is also way too early to know and still to be proven and all of that, but is that we're still so unbelievably early in all of it that if Solana brings on other use cases and brings on more usage on the blockchain and other things settle on Ethereum after transacting on, so like, I think anything that can happen to bring more activity on chain at this point is net positive, not just for the ecosystem, but for Ethereum as well as mm-hmm. a chain that most of you know Web three kind of settles on at this point. I I don't think yeah. they're in opposition or contradiction, but I can understand why not just saying like Ethereum is the one and only smart yeah. chain, smart contract chain. Totally, it's upsetting. It's so funny to me because like I think the whole idea of like this is coming from arguments as soldiers, and it's like I'm bought into Ethereum. So anyone who attacks Ethereum is my enemy because they are harming me economically, potentially. There's an element of religiosity. Like you're contradicting someone's worldview. Exactly. But it's so funny because I feel like if it comes from this place of wanting to protect economic value, people need to understand that the world is a little bit influenceable by you, but like not much. And it's much better to just look at the world and like try and figure out what's true and make your investments based on that rather than make your investments and try and make them true by like attacking people who disagree with you. It makes zero sense and it's hilarious. But like, I guess on the internet, because tribes really do have like a decent amount of power, like more power than ever, like this whole idea of brigading as a way to create value is like 
a little bit true. It was never true basically at all. I mean, it was true a little bit, but it's way more true now than it ever was. But it's still super weak compared to just the forces of the universe. Unless you're Elon Musk. Unless you're Elon Musk, right, yeah. exactly. Then you can really move markets. But like, I, th- I think people who basically can't move markets, trying to move markets, is a recipe for... Um, We'll, we'll call it like uh, you've been captured basically and like you're no longer like a, a rational economic agent anymore. You're just like you're, you're just like a pawn on somebody else's board. It, that's like really scary. I want people to maintain their autonomy and to think critically and independently <laughs> and make their decisions based on what they think is true rather than what would be best if it were true for them financially right now based on their previous decisions. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But you're basically asking to change the nature of human nature. Nathan, when right. you say that. I'm asking people to embrace their better angels. Anyways. I can yeah. be I can be unbiased and look at it like that because I'm paid as a newsletter writer to do that. Right? right. So maybe if I, you know, were more of an Ethereum holder than I was a newsletter writer, if more of my income depended on Ethereum, maybe I would, I would right. be the same way. Yeah. Totally. Okay. I want to switch gears and talk about your recent post, which I really loved, called the interface phase, which is a tongue twister, but was also a very interesting <laughs> post. Um, talking about how Web3 needs its own Web3 interfaces. Um, and well, actually, I'll let you explain it, Packy, because I, you wrote it. And so um, for, for folks who haven't read the post yet, um, I'd love to hear, yeah, just th- the summary of the piece and your hypothesis on why Web3 needs its own interface. Yeah, so this one, there's some posts where I like, I have an idea in my head and I'm like really trying to figure out how to put it into words and I can't quite get there, but I can just write a lot of words until maybe some of it kind of something emerges inside of all of that. And so that's kind of how I felt about this a little bit. I think Chris Dixon had a thread yesterday that I thought actually captured some of the points, uh, certainly much more succinctly uh, than, than I was trying to, but I had this, I think it kind of came from this place of, it feels like there are a lot of projects in Web3 that feel, and this was a word that, that Chris used in the thread, but feel like kind of skeuomorphic versions of Web2. And so it's just like taking the Web2 thing and putting them onto Web3 and then trying to infuse a little bit of Web3-ness. And so I think probably the the most public example of this is something like a BitCloud where it's like, this is Twitter, but tokens. And so to me, mm-hmm. like that kind of prompted a, when going back, looking at another, uh, Union Square Ventures piece that uh, Danny Grant and I believe Nick Grossman wrote a few years ago about the app interface cycle where throughout history, like, I guess they would look back at 2018 and all the people who were building apps said, we're kind of just waiting. We're in the infrastructure phase. We need better infrastructure. And all the infrastructure people said, no, 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 actually, we, we have the infrastructure. We just need more apps to be built on top of them. And so they went back and looked throughout history. And the the pattern that they found was that there are apps that get built and they're really, really popular. And then the next generation has to kind of come in and build the supporting infrastructure to actually make those things work. And then new apps are built on top of that infrastructure. They push the limits and then something else uh, kind of comes in below them. And that cycle just kind of repeats ad infinitum. To me, I think the the thing that I wanted to add to that was that there's in that cycle at some point, the need for a new interface. So for web 1.0, which was just the ability to kind of read things on the internet and to interact with the internet in a graphical way. It was Netscape. 
for web 2.0, it was kind of read, write in real time interaction. So you could like something, or I think dig was, it was kind of one of the examples where someone could post something, other people could interact with it and that would shoot it up the message board. So it, it made the internet more like a canvas web three still in a lot of ways feels like it's building in that kind of design paradigm. Whereas I think that, you know, there are new things that can be built and new structures that can kind of emerge here. And I don't know, I'm not a designer. I don't know exactly what they are, but starting kind of wallet and ownership first feels like one interesting thing to explore. And then kind of, you know, virtual worlds or kind of 3d spaces or even AR, like that feels like maybe another kind of angle of exploration for, for web three. And it's early and the infrastructure actually still needs to catch up to make that usable. If, if you've used things like, you know, Decentraland or Somnium Space or any of those, like certainly it needs to get faster and feel a little bit smoother. But it feels like if you're talking about one of the values of Web3 being that you can own digital items, just owning a digital item and having it kind of sit in a normal interface doesn't feel as valuable as if you could kind of make the whole internet feel like this immersive kind of game world. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I I found it really provocative um, because you're right that a lot of projects have been built kind of skeuomorphically, but like the underlying architecture has been different. Um, like even going back to Andy's definition of like imagining all the websites and databases and accounts and services were on one shared server and people are building on top of it, it, it kind of suggests like those applications on top, like maybe remain like, like what's really fundamentally changing is the back end. But on the front end, it doesn't really suggest any major shift. And here in this piece, um, you're saying that we we actually need new interfaces to fully be able to communicate like the fact that everything is essentially like on this one um, hypothetical server. And to make that a little bit more kind of just magical and smooth and like, I don't think it needs to catch up to Web 2's performance. I think it needs to be a, a different thing. I mean, like there were people using the internet before Netscape existed. And that was kind of, you know, the, the hobbyists and the nerds and the academics and the military and the people who really needed to use it. Probably Web3 got more people into it before hitting that kind of interface point than before, because there is the angle of speculation, because there are more people online anyway. And we were all stuck in home last year. So I, th- I think people came onto it maybe ahead of, of that interface. But really, I think to to, you know, quote the the old book to, to cross the chasm, it, it needs to be a lot smoother. And I hope that's not just kind of bastardizing all of the Web3 characteristics and maybe like having tokens here and there that you don't actually have ownership of and all of that. I really hope that there is a way that people can interact with it that just feels natural and easy to understand and easy to grok, but also retains the benefits of Web3. Right. There's something really fascinating about this to me. The phrase that's jumping out is object permanence. Because if you think about what's the point of having a shared database that everyone can program, it's to have objects in there that have some permanence. You can't just mm-hmm. copy them. That's not how the laws of physics work. You can't just um, delete them, you know? Like, and, and so object permanence is a phrase that comes from our idea of the physical world. It's a mm-hmm. 3D concept of like, when I put a ball under a table, the ball is still there. You know, I, can, I can't see it, but there is object permits. When I pull it out, I know it's the same ball. And so I think there's something actually deep in the connection between feeling like you're in a physical universe, like a 3D universe, like a metaverse, and having object permanence, which is sort of the central point of like Web3, I guess. Which is kind of crazy. Like if you just take a step back and like, I, I act like a really high kid here, just 
it, it <laughs> makes you it. feel kind of like you're we are in a simulation when both web three technology and kind of metaverse you know immersive world technology are both kind of coming to a head at the same time right. and they like kind of need each other and they're two totally you know pretty separate kind of technological tracks that both of them are on and they're both kind of coming coming to a head at the same time I, I think is is pretty interesting but that that is one of the things that I think blockchains do well and web3 does well is make the digital feel or like behave more like a physical thing like you know bitcoin is a lot more like cash than it is like going to bank of america i can send one bitcoin to you i don't have the bitcoin you have the bitcoin uh nfts same thing it's a lot more like a physical object that just happens to kind of manifest in in digital form but i own it then you own it and so it feels like a, a world that looks more like the physical world when it has when when the things that we're interacting with have more of those characteristics feels like the right kind of interface. Right. And and Balaji has extended this analogy too. Um, previously, I think he has said that like the creator economy is going to become the crypto economy, or they're 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 one and the same because it used to be the case that creators did not have any property rights on the web two platforms. They didn't actually own their content. Their content could be co-opted by the platforms and monetized. However, the company saw fit and crypto introduces property rights where they, as the creators of the thing of the NFT or whatever content actually could own and monetize it on their own terms. Very well said. It kind of makes you see, feel like we're already in the simulation. Like, like maybe this is already played out. And so this physical world that we're in right now is actually like the crypto verse metaverse. You, you went even higher than I did. But yes, I, I mean, I think you're you're totally right. Like even thinking about DAOs before is maybe like the first time that I, I had this idea about crypto kind of enabling things to go back to the natural state of things, but just on a wider scale. It's like, if you think about, if you're starting now with mm-hmm. the tools at our disposal, do you build something where like a board of three to 12 people controls everything at a company that, that has... A, you know, a million, a billion, whatever users, or do you try to decentralize that ownership a little bit and give some decision-making power in some way to the people who right. own it? And you could not have done that before on, on web two, but if you're in a smaller tribe, like that's kind of how it might work in some cases, obviously there's the strong man theory of history and like all, all of that. But um, I don't know. It feels like it gives you tools to do things as they should have been done by coordinating larger groups of people across, across space and time a little bit. Yeah, I was talking to someone else about this recently, how um, for like 100 years or so, there's been this bubbling desire for um, workplace democracy or worker self-management and worker ownership of organizations um, and not for all decisions in a workplace to be made in this top-down fashion by a benevolent benevolent dictator, but instead for the workers to basically be in control of their own destiny, influence business decisions and strategy, et cetera. Um, It feels like we just haven't really had the tools to enable people to do that well, or to do that at scale inside of an organization of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people and potentially blockchain and like ways to coordinate people and transmit value to them enable us to do that coordination in a way that like 
nature has always intended us or people have always wanted us to be able to do. I mean, like even the idea of staking, I think is, is such an interesting one. Like, you know, a lot of, a lot of VC funds have the pound the table rule, or you get your one pound the table a year, or if two people pound the table, a deal goes through or whatever, that could also just be done kind of more mathematically and elegantly just by staking some amount of your carry or your whatever. So I, I think this idea of staking is also really interesting too, because it allows you to wait how much you believe in different things. And that feels like something that's been a little bit maybe underexplored as well. But I think staking is a really interesting one for that kind of decision-making too, because right now it feels like, I don't know exactly. I don't know. I, I, I'm not a, a token designer and I don't know exactly, exactly how you make this work, but it's probably not, you know, nobody has the, either the expertise or the knowledge or even the passion or desire to make certain decisions within a, a DAO or an organization of people. But there are some things that people do have the knowledge, feel really strongly about all of those. And so like, how can you say kind of with numbers, I care about this thing. And I think that I believe that I'm right here in a way that, that kind of makes decision-making more decentralized, but not too loose. I don't, this is very early in it. Right. And even to like weigh that against their reputation and their expertise and their, their experiences. Exactly. Such that the people who are able to, yeah, put a higher weight on their vote are the people who are the experts in that particular area. Exactly. Right. The, the interest, the thing that's occurring to me is like, when you said that we didn't have the technology to do this, the first thing that popped into my head is like, well, I mean, we could have like companies could, they don't need to be like public blockchain verifiable. Like they can have internally, you know, generated systems that allow people to have like a vote or whatever. They can all base it on web too. Cause assuming there's basically some trust bubble within the company, like that's totally fine. But I think the tool that we lacked was like, the memes basically like the beliefs like there's this wild network effect of belief in ethereum or belief in smart contracts and 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 belief in maybe DAOs is like a new way of of organizing that then can probably take over other forms of economic activity if it's proven to work and it's hooking into that belief network effect that's like the key thing i think rather than actually the technology to like give employees a way to somehow like vote on something internal you know i like i think the idea that you should is 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 like more important than if it's on the blockchain or not yeah this, this just has enough weight and enough people bought into the fact that it might be the right way to do it that people are willing to experiment yeah and now people are going to experiment. And if it works, then that'll be awesome. Or some will work and some won't or, or, you know, whatever. And we'll use the ways that work and we'll keep iterating on it. It reminds me of, um, I think your favorite, my favorite post that, that you've ever written, my favorite of your work is the story time one, um, where it's about stories are kind of like a, a one-off, like a person says a thing. And then narratives are sort of like the accumulation of all the things, all the people who you know have said about the thing. And, I think the narrative network effect to kind of like bring in one of my posts about it of like how, how, how stories have network effects actually. Um, and, and the power that can come from stories, um, is a really fascinating. I think that's like, that was the big shift for me to be a lot more interested, honestly, in like web three or, or, or blockchain stuff generally is like, I think I always was like, all of these things you don't actually need a blockchain to do in a lot of ways. And we've never evolved a reason to do them without the blockchain. So why do we need the blockchain to do them? But then now I'm realizing, I think the core thing is actually just the narrative network effect, <laughs> you know? And like, that's mm -hmm. actually the real thing. There's the memes, not the, uh, not the technology in some ways. So. I mean, we're all students of 
technology and the history of technology and all of that. And it's amazing how much of it all comes back to people at the end of the day, like no matter how advanced the thing is. And I think this is another really great example of that. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Power to the people, power to the person. Another great post that you wrote, Becky. Um, this has been wonderful. And yeah, like go read Packy's post, notboring.co. Um, I'm in awe of your piece of output and juggling that with being an investor. And so it's just been really wonderful to watch and be friends with you over the last year. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Packy, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I feel very grateful to have met both of you over the past year. It's been one of the better parts of the pandemic and all of this. So this was really fun. Thanks for having me.